Welcome to Shooting the Shit. The podcast bringing bathroom banter from our home to yours. Sit back and relax on your porcelain throne. And welcome to Shooting the Shit. Uh, today with me, I have Maya Serini, who is a lovely lady uh, from the great state of Maryland, <laughs> originally. And uh, actually, fun fact, went to school down the street from where I grew up. And I didn't know that until we actually met each other at Wash U. Um, so, yeah. So, if hi. Maya, introduce hi, yourself, say hi. <laughs> yeah, I am from the great state of Maryland, an oft-forgotten state. Um, yes. Totally unfair. It's a fabulous place to go. It's um, It's a weird shaped state, which I like. You know, it was poorly drawn. Yeah. But it was drawn a long time ago. And since then, we've just been doing great stuff. So I think it's forgivable. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> um, so because this is a bathroom-oriented podcast, I guess, uh, in the title, um, I have a few fun bathroom questions to ask you yeah, to start with. One of them is, what is your favorite bathroom you've ever been in? <laughs> do you have one? Yes, I do. <laughs> it just came to me. So I lived and worked in St. Louis for five years. Um, that's where me and Jane met, was at Wash U. And I worked for, um, I did some medical work in St. Louis, which I'm sure we'll mm-hmm. talk about later. But my boss in St. Louis um, had three kids and they wanted me to be there basically a nanny for a, for a weekend while they were out of town. Ooh. And so I got to stay in their million dollar mansion. Um, and with their three kids who were like super sweet kids. They were yeah. And the bathroom in the basement, they have like basically a basement apartment wow. was like literally that shower. I still think about that shower. It was so, it was just like absolutely transcendent. The water pressure was incredible. The whole it was like one of those walk-in showers. Yeah. So like there's no door. So you just oh. feel like you're like in a waterfall. It was incredible. Yeah. That's definitely the best bathroom I've ever been. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> My yeah, God. it was a huge perk of the job. Yes. And then what has been the worst bathroom experience you've ever had, probably? <laughs> <sighs> okay. Hmm. <laughs> This isn't the worst bathroom experience I've ever had, but certainly an interesting bathroom experience was I was in rural Ghana last summer, um, traveling around, not like doing anything quote unquote productive. Um, and I was with this woman, this, this skinny woman and her husband, and they brought us to their farm. They have quail farm out in rural Ghana. So like four hours from the capital city of Accra. And they basically like we, we had gone out there and we were having such a great time. They were the nicest people on planet earth. I'm convinced. And I basically was like, Hey, like I assume there's no bathroom here. Right. Like, can I just like go pee? And they kind of looked at me. They were, I think they were like surprised that the like, you know, dumb white American was like willing to just squat behind a bush and pee. But I was just like, yeah, like I got to pee. So I went and peed back there and, um, 
earned much more respect from yeah. <laughs> from the people I was with. And it yeah. was a completely pleasant bathroom experience. Like absolutely no, no problems. Um, yeah. That was definitely a weird one. Yeah. The worst, the worst bathroom experience I've ever had was obviously at some point in some public place in a porta potty. Yeah. I actually have like a phobia of porta porta potties and avoid them like that. the plague. Yeah. They're they're rough. <laughs> I yeah, I have like a lot of issues with porta potties as a system and would literally rather squat and pee in dirt. Yep. Um I'd rather just go behind a bush. Like, I also that's did. it. Oh. I wouldn't even care if someone saw me. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're peeing. Like, it's human. It's human. They will you know? My yeah. little sister and I actually peed while we were at uh, the DC protests in oh. June. Yeah. There was nowhere to pee. And so we went and we, like, tucked ourselves sort of behind this apartment building in downtown DC, dug a little hole, peed. There was definitely a camera. We don't know if it captured us. <laughs> but whatever. But it was, like, totally fine. Yeah. And I feel like especially with with COVID-19 because you can't like access public restrooms, which yeah. is good because they're not always cleaned properly. And also mm-hmm. like the, it's, it's a lot of work to clean those. And yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. So it's just a lot of like me realizing I have to go to the bathroom and I'm just like in the middle of the city and I'm like, well, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Like you have to just, you, you totally have to just like, know your exit strategy and be like, yeah. okay, I guess this, I've, I've found a small patch of unpaved territory and this yeah. will be my little spot and I will be here. Yeah. Um, it's what you gotta do. It's like, it's like how you gotta be. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> last bathroom related question is what is your favorite bathroom related product? It can be something for you, something for the space. I love having candles in the bathroom. Mm. Not so much for smells, but for like the aesthetic of them. Yeah. I love like taking, I love taking baths. Like I think baths are really fun um, and relaxing. And so I love like taking a bath and putting and like lighting candles so that it's like pretty dark mm-hmm. um and you just get like kind of that flickery light that's something I would do when I was working like long shifts in St. Louis it's like I yeah. come home and I like get in the bathtub with nothing but like candlelight and it's like a good way to just force your brain to kind of like slow down and not be in like a frenzied state and so that I, I'd say that's 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 up there yeah I'd agree. I'd say like a nice, like when the bathroom is dark, there is something kind of really calming about it. Like when my room's dark, I'm like, just like tired. <laughs> mm-hmm. I describe myself as an anti-claustrophobe. I love mm-hmm. being in like tight spaces. Yeah. And like feel very like cozy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I think it's that like all I want out of life is to be a tiny baby in a papoose. Yeah. And that's like my dream. And so like being in a very small bathroom is like very it's like very private and it's also like Mm -hmm. you have absolute control over the space and I think that's part of it too yeah but like when you're in such a small enclosed area you're not really there's no variables there's no like someone gonna come in the window is someone gonna see me it's like nope this is my space I'm governing it I can be anywhere that I want to be and no one can have anything to say about it that's a great way of looking at, I don't know. I th- I really like bathrooms and I think they're really, I think they can like serve as so many different spaces for people to like 
disconnect in a healthy way from everything around them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was a huge thing for me at the hospital was like, sometimes going to the bathroom was the only break I would have in like a yeah. four hour period where I wasn't around patients slash clinicians. And yeah. like, just those bathrooms about, were like sacred. Yeah. 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 You can look in the mirror and be like, I'm okay. Or I'm going to be okay. <laughs> or I'm not oh. okay. <laughs> oh, like being in the bathroom on a night shift. <laughs> Looking uh, at yourself like, in the mirror. A 12-hour night shift and like looking at yourself in the mirror in the bathroom, like really is a very grounding, profound experience. <laughs> like, wow, <laughs> I am conscious right now and we are here and I need to go do some things. Yep. Yeah. Definitely a special space. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for answering my bathroom questions. Um, oh my God. Yes. Pleasure. <laughs> And related to the bathroom, um, is like you said, those very peaceful moments at the hospital. Um, and so I kind of wanted to jump into talking to you about your degree in narrative medicine, um, mm-hmm. specifically, because I think it's something that's really unique and something that um, I didn't know a lot about previously. And I've done my own research, but obviously I'm not an expert on it like you are. Um, uh, nobody is. <laughs> nobody yet. Um, uh, but also I think it's it's such a cool way to look, I think, at the healthcare system and, and navigate it in a empathetic way. And so I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. <laughs> um, yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. So I guess to kind of start off, I wanted to ask you how you would define narrative medicine. <laughs> That's a really popular question to get yeah. asked uh, yeah. when you're getting a master's degree in something. People usually want to know what it is. Um, so my elevator pitch, my like 15 second, what is narrative medicine is narrative medicine is the intersection of storytelling and clinical care to improve the healthcare experience for patients, clinicians, and families. Hmm. So that's the one sentence. What is narrative medicine? Um, to go into like more of a deeper way and to like have more of a conversation about it. Narrative medicine is a new field. It was started in 2010 by Rita Sharon at Columbia University. Um, it became a master's program, or it, it started a little bit before that, and then like yeah. it sort of became a master's program in 2010. Um, and so people then began getting degrees in in the study of narrative medicine. It's a master's of science, um, and. I think of narrative medicine via the quotation whose origin I cannot remember, which is make the road by walking. Um, And narrative medicine is really about making the field by living it. And Mm -hmm. so that means that we're constantly evolving and things that maybe weren't as present in narrative medicine five years ago are very present now. So we do a lot of anti-racism work now. We are invested in like trans rights and how to um, best provide healthcare to members of the trans community and, and non-binary members of our communities. Um, We talk a lot about the legacy of transatlantic slavery. Uh, Obviously I was at Columbia in 2019. So the 1619 project was happening. Um, while I was there. So like, that was something that we dedicated our time to. We talk, I mean, because we're in medicine, we talk a lot, a lot, a lot about disability studies Mm -hmm. um, and ways to make medicine accessible and beyond accessible to make medicine a space for healing as opposed to a space for trauma. Yeah. Um, 
And narrative medicine as a practice, the core principle of narrative medicine is close reading. Mm. Um, and that kind of is manifested. A lot of the master's program is reading texts. And I use the word text loosely because text might be a sculpture. It might be yeah. an audio file. It might be a video. It might be a poem. It might be a selection of a novel. It, it might be, you know, an oral history. All of those things are considered texts in the narrative medicine realm. Um, and so you're basically looking for what's there and what's not there and what the author is trying to do and what the author, what the author's perspective is. Yeah. Um, and that practice then translates into clinical care for those of us that do narrative medicine and want to be clinicians or already are clinicians. Mm -hmm. It's a way, it's a framework for understanding the interaction between the self and the other, the other in the clinical encounter, usually being the patient. Mm -hmm. and. Um, close reading is, is leads to close listening and close listening leads to better understanding of what your patients is actually saying and what they're not saying. And yeah, a good example of that is I treated a patient in St. Louis. I say I treated, I did clinical research in St. Louis. I am not a clinician. Um, but I worked with a patient in St. Louis who was on one of our research studies and um, was really anxious about being on that research study and was being really combative to members of the research team. And they sent me in um, because I'm a young woman and this patient was a young woman and because I had a track record of doing well with combative patients. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned by talking to this patient that this patient was breastfeeding. And that was why she was so anxious yeah. about what was going on is that she had a three week old child mm -hmm. and didn't know when she was going to get to see her child again. She's in the ICU. Yeah. And so narrative medicine is explicitly looking for those moments. It's looking for, well, what did all of those people that came into this room and talked to this woman not ask her? Yeah. What did they miss? What did they miss and how did they miss it? And how yeah. is that, that the reason that yeah. she was so frightened? Yeah. And so narrative medicine is, is, a, is kind of a, a scholarly approach to asking those sorts of questions and thinking about that, um, which is something that, I mean, I've said before that I was trying to practice narrative medicine before I got into it yeah, and didn't have the words and didn't have the skills and was like kind of make, making it up as I went along. Yeah. Um, narrative medicine gives you like a strong framework of understanding, okay, like these are the things that are happening. These are the things I can do better. Mm -hmm. This is a way that I can self-reflect and hopefully continue to improve. It gives a little more formality to it. That yeah. makes sense. That's awesome. And then how did you decide, I know you said that you were already kind of exploring and doing narrative medicine in, um, in a lot of senses um, before you went and pursued a degree. What kind of led you to, to go in and get that, that formal training and experience? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a, it was a winding path. Mm -hmm. So I started working in trauma um, as a sophomore in college. I was pulling nights and working weekend 12-hour shifts while a full-time student in college. And I was exposed to a lot of traumatic injury and emotional trauma from that, um, from that work that I also did as a junior. Um, and what I found was the way that I was getting through that experience, this, this sort of the secondhand trauma and moral <laughs> injury of that, yeah which I think a lot of clinicians experience is by writing poetry. Um, so I decided to take a poetry class my junior year and realized that poetry was really integral 
to my emotional resilience and my mm-hmm. processing and my ability to remain present and emotionally healthy. So I got really into writing poetry and then um, spring of my junior year, I got in a really bad car accident mm-hmm. and was brought to an emergency room. I was traveling at the time and it was a really, really bad experience yeah. um, in terms of the lack of support that I received, the callousness of the clinicians that treated mm-hmm. me, um, the pretty complete absence of any support that I got from the institution of WashU mm-hmm. who were supposed to be taking care of me mm-hmm. to some degree um, from my yep. professors. I think this is a really common thing and I have a lot of thoughts about it. And most of my closest friends were studying abroad because it was second semester junior year. So mm-hmm. my best friend was in China. Um, my other closest friend was in Europe. My other closest friend was taking a semester off in Los Angeles. So I was really... I, I really lacked a strong support network and that was hard, not just for the fact that I definitely had PTSD and still struggle with yeah, struggle with that in cars. Um, and, but it was also hard that like I had broken ribs and a concussion and I couldn't bend down to get my laundry out of the laundry machine Yeah, and no one was there to help me. So I would just have to grit my teeth and cry and do it. Um, and through that experience, I went back to work less than a week after the accident and started pulling shifts again. And that was a really confusing decision to a lot of people. But what I found was that the only people who had my back and the only people that really understood what I was going through were the people working trauma with me. Yeah. And they became the people that made me feel like I was going to get through the day. And, and, um, so through that experience, that was really affirming to me of like, healthcare is not just a scary place. Healthcare is also a place of community if you know where to find it. Um, and I started working with patients with this very new lens of like, I know to some extent what it feels like to have your, to have the physical integrity of your body destroyed. Yeah. And to be in a place that you don't understand and where no one is there to help you as far as you can tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my approach to to being with patients really changed. And I particularly remember we had this patient who um, was, was someone who had a lower ability to understand uh, medical terminology than than most adults. Um, whether that was because of a developmental delay or because of lack of education, I couldn't tell you, but, um, this patient was really frightened of getting their blood drawn. And I was again sent in as the, one of the people to like, kind of try and help out. Obviously I wasn't able to do the blood draws because I'm not a clinician, but I was there. And what I realized was what that patient needed was to be distracted and to ground themselves in something comforting. And so I started Mm -hmm. asking him about what his mom cooks for Thanksgiving dinner because it was like Mm -hmm. November. And we went through, and this is, and we went through this whole, like I went down the list while he was getting his blood drawn because at first he was really panicked about it. And I just sort of distracted him. He's like, does she make sweet potato pie? Does she make turkey? Like, do you make, do you ever make a turkey? What do you put on your turkey? Do you use sage? Do you use butter? Like, what do you do? And by the end of it, he was no longer crying and he had gotten the blood sample that we needed. Mm-hmm. And he and I had this very like, I mean, it was a, a short connection. It was a couple of minutes at most, but it was like by the end of it, I could see like that that was important. And he kind of looked me in the eyes and he said, 
and this patient had a broken femur and he said like am I gonna get better and I was like you are Mm -hmm. you you will get better and that's the only time I've ever promised a patient that they would get better yeah I don't regret that because what I was saying to him and my ribs were still broken at this point Mm -hmm. um was we're gonna get better yeah and I realized through that interaction and through healing from my own stuff, like, wow, I really, I'm seeing a different way of being in healthcare and I'm seeing some people practice it and other people not. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing scenarios where people could have made my experience better Mm -hmm. and didn't. And how can I be a person that people remember as, no, this person really took care of me as opposed to this doctor swooped in, stabbed me with a needle, grabbed some of my blood and left and didn't tell me anything. Um, And then senior year, I took a class called Writing in Medicine with Jennifer Arch, who's a professor at WashU. Um, And then second semester, I took another class called The Sentence in English, Mm. um, which was a pretty nitty gritty sentence diagramming class. I basically just wanted to take anything she was teaching. She and I. (laughs) And she suggested to me as she read more and more of my work that I look into the Columbia narrative mm. medicine program and that she thought it would be a good place for me just cause she knew me and she knew what yeah. my interests were. Um, and I was already prepping to apply to medical school with that cycle um, and decided that what I was going to do is apply to really top tier medical schools and Columbia narrative medicine operating under the assumption that if somehow I got into one of these top tier medical schools, I could defer for a year because it's a year long master's and go to Columbia. And if I didn't get into any of those medical schools, I would go get a master's and then I would have a stronger application. Yeah. So that's how I, and then I didn't get into medical school, but I did get into Columbia and I basically decided that I was just going to go and a few months later, I like picked up my life in St. Louis and moved yeah. to New York. That's sort of how it happened. It's a long story, but no, but it's important. I think I think it's important to understand how you got there. To I think it, it highlights how important this field is that you found it in the way that you did yeah. too. And it's and something that I like absolutely saw you know, knowing all the people that I now know in narrative medicine is that narrative medicine is a community of people who are almost all people with a big split inside them, like me, who are simultaneously very soft, dedicated to softness. And whether that be through art or Mm -hmm. through music or through writing or poetry, like I'm a poet, but not everyone in the program is a poet. Yeah, of course. And then people who also had this very hard science side of them and really wanted to be physicians. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people in the program go on to medical school, uh, among other pre-professional careers yeah. like law. And um, there's a girl who's going to PA school starting in the fall. There's people who go into nursing. Um, but that narrative medicine, almost everyone who ends up getting a narrative medicine degree says something along the lines of, I didn't know that there was a that there was a union of these things that I was doing until I found this program. And it was like, it was like a light coming through the clouds. It was suddenly, Oh my God, I, this is the thing that I need to be doing. And I would say I felt sort of the same way. Um, 
and I had been really involved in the hard sciences in college. I was a chemistry major. And I was really hesitant to go and do this basically literature and like social science mm-hmm. program um, and had a lot less of a background in it than most of my, most of my uh, contemporaries in the program. Um, but it, it ended up being really great and being that union that I was looking for and the lens that I was looking for as I prepare for a career in medicine. Yeah, that's beautiful. I guess, why do you, like as somebody, I, the way I was in the medical field was um, as an EMT on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, And I definitely, from my experience, saw a lot of horrible interactions and like really harsh interactions um, between uh, emergency medicine, um, specifically in my realm, like between paramedics and patients um, and students and bystanders, things like that. Yeah, I guess my question is, why do you think that there like is such trouble within the medical field outside of uh, this community of people that I feel like also narrative medicine is growing, uh, which is really wonderful. And as a field and also just as people in already in the medical field, understanding it. um, Why do you think that it's been so like harsh and abrasive at times um in the medical field power yeah <laughs> um we talk a lot about power mm-hmm. in narrative medicine hierarchies um and medicine is extremely hierarchical mm-hmm. um everyone in a hospital basically fits into a hierarchy and in fact people like me who are in clinical research mm-hmm. Part of the reason that role was challenging is that you don't fit neatly into the hierarchy. And so people don't necessarily know how to treat you and you get lots of different levels of respect from different people. And what I found was the more you built relationships with people, the better you got treated. But a lot of people who worked with me weren't willing to do that, weren't able or willing to do that. Um, And so they would feel like, well, that nurse is just like not even listening to me and or whoa, that nurse just like went way out of her way to do this thing for me. That was weird. Like she didn't have to do that. Um, but, but I think that the medicine is founded on paternalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually, so the early, the early days of medicine, right. And I'm not talking about like shamanic medicine, which is yeah. totally different. Yeah. Um, and I, I consider that like almost separate from medicine, like because of the way that that is practiced. But I'm talking about like in the year 1800 in mm-hmm. America. Yeah. Um, your doctor was a person who knew something about the body and had training in the whole body and was there when you were born mm-hmm. and would be there when you died if they outlived you yeah. and treated everything in between, even though they didn't really have the tools to do so. So if you came in with an infection, they would make you a tincture and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but what a medicine, what a doctor's job really was back in those days was to be a listener, was to be someone who witnessed suffering yeah. and did what they could to ameliorate it. And the number of things that they could do was very limited. It might have been putting a wet rag on someone's forehead, but that was still the job of a doctor. It wasn't the job of a nurse. That was the doctor's job, was to actively reduce suffering for patients. Mm-hmm. And, and be there after, physically. To be there physically. And, and mentally, and, yeah. And mentally and give your attention mm-hmm. and and hold the baby and put the baby into the mother's arms. And like people would name their, people would let doctors name their babies. Like 
it was common that you would say mm-hmm. to the doctor, Dr. Jameson, like name my baby. And, you know, Dr. Jameson would say Timothy, and that would be your baby's name. Yeah. That was the level of respect. And that was the level of community involvement for mm-hmm. most doctors in that time. And then as medicine advanced, as we got penicillin, we got vaccines, we started understanding pasteurization. We started understanding um, just like medications in general that actually worked and that we could reproducibly create medicine changed to here's this expert that doesn't really know me, but really knows this science that I don't know. And that creates a power dynamic. And because medicine was white and male and older, mm-hmm. it became very paternalistic. Your doctor was, oh, doctor so-and-so, I, I have this ache and pain. And doctors would say, aha, I know what that ache and pain is yeah. from. You have rheumatoid arthritis and I will give you this prescription and run along, dear. Mm-hmm. And so, so you're right. <laughs> right. It became less about the doctor listening and being present and fixing your problem or, and, and ameliorating your suffering. Mm-hmm as it was, this doctor's going to fix my problem and never see me again. Yeah. And that then, as, as I see it, ramped up, up, up. The more scientific things become, the less time you actually spend with your doctor, the more people need doctors because it, doctors can actually fix things now that we couldn't fix 100 years ago or even sometimes 50 years ago. And what that means is that being a doctor has become less and less about care and more and more about science. And in this country also about money. Yeah. (laughs) And because there is a power dynamic and because there is money dynamic, inevitably you are going to get doctors who treat patients very differently based on their perceived social status and based on their perceived financial status and patients and, and some of this comes from the fact that being a doctor is really hard yeah. and you see a lot of really terrible things. And I, and, and same with being a paramedic and being a nurse and being a tech yep. and being a therapist and an audiologist, like being all of these things is hard. And like, I think that has to be at the base of this pyramid and you understand why this is messed up is that yeah. you're putting a bunch of people through hell all the time and you're not supporting them. There's a fun fact. They're going to get nasty. Yep. They're going to get nasty. They can't cope. They're, that's, they're going to deflect. They're going to try to find ways to get through the day. Absolutely. And what they're going to see, they're going to see patterns too. And in the United States, one of the patterns that they're going to see is this poor patient can't pay for healthcare. And now my hospital is firing people. Mm-hmm. And now my hospital can't take more patients. And now I'm being questioned about why I treated this patient. And this patient is stealing whatever and this patient is unable to get their prescriptions and so then they come back because they didn't clear the infection and of course that's going to create doctors that hate poor people yeah and it is neither the fault i mean having that attitude i'm not saying that having an attitude of like i don't want to treat low-income patients isn't a moral failing because it is Mm -hmm. but it also has roots yes and it's not and it's not happening in a vacuum and it's not that one day, Dr. Whoever decided that, yeah. they, that they didn't like low-income patients. It's that they watched, they got eroded away by the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And narrative medicine is a way to basically stick your foot in the door before it slams and say, no, we are not going to burn out. We are not going to run ourselves into the, dra- into the ground. We are not going to sacrifice you on the altar of medicine. Yeah. That's what happens to people is like, I know a lot of doctors who work 100 hours a week. 
and are tired and hungry and sore all the time and don't get to see their babies and don't get to see their partners. Yeah. And They're treated not like human beings. Absolutely not. Absolutely. And in no other field does that happen. No, no other field. The way that it happens in medicine. And that's because it was grandfathered in. Yeah. And that's because if you look at the way that medicine had to be taught in 1900 versus the way that it had to be taught in 1950 versus the way it has to be taught in 2020, newsflash, the amount of information that you have to know has grown exponentially yes. since medicine and the medical school and residency system started. And the number of patients being treated has grown exponentially. And the number of doctors treating those patients has not. Mm-hmm. And it means that you are treating more patients with more complicated problems and responsible for more information about them than ever before. And you are not being adequately supported yeah. and your salary has not grown it's at, the rate, at the same rate. Yeah. And so narrative medicine is basically saying, stop, we have to fix this problem. Yeah. And it comes, it comes from individuals who then make their community change. And right now, narrative medicine is still small enough. And like, the, and like narrative medicine is just one practice that falls under what I would call medical humanities or medical humanism, mm-hmm. which, is the, which is a much larger field. Um, narrative medicine is, is one way of approaching the problems of healthcare and humanistic medicine and the lack thereof. Um, using narratology and storytelling and particularly using the narrative medicine workshop method, which is a method that we learn in, um, in the program. That's awesome. Um, I guess, yeah, kind of going off of that, how do you feel like I know currently, um, at least where, where I've seen narrative medicine um, is like you see it in the hospitals, in the doctor's offices, in the clinics. And I was wondering how you feel that it could, I guess in the time of of COVID-19, how narrative medicine can kind of become a public health tool. Um, And I was wondering how how you feel that could be used or how you've seen it been used in the past. I know I've read some pieces from, from doctors and nurses and other frontline workers. So narrative medicine, I think, is easiest to do in mm-hmm. clinical environments. Yes. Um, so within your team at a hospital, doing a narrative medicine workshop once a month or once a week mm-hmm. is much more doable. I will say I am currently holding narrative medicine workshops online mm-hmm. um, for a group of participants That's who wonderful. are in various, um, who, who do various things. So one of them is a playwright, um, one of them works in hospice, a few nurses, a neonatologist or two, actually two neonatologists. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically like kind of a group of, of people, a masseuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one way to bring narrative medicine to the public is to do what I am trying to do, which is teach narrative medicine to a group of people and teach them how to teach it, teach them how yeah. to give a narrative medicine workshop. Um, and the workshop formula for narrative medicine. And like, there's a lot of subtlety to it, but the basic framework is you bring in a piece of text. And again, text is inclusive. Mm -hmm. You discuss that text and then you offer a prompt, a creative prompt, which is usually writing, but also could be drawing or movement. Mm -hmm. And then you discuss the responses to that prompt. Um, And what I've found is that 
narrative medicine is a useful tool for being reminded that people care about you Mm -hmm. and being reminded that people are in your community and in your corner. For example, we had um, one of the physicians told us had just come off a night shift and was very emotional and had just lost a couple of children Mm -hmm. Um, and got the chance to share that story in our workshop and be heard by nurses and a palliative care specialist and a doula and me, you know, someone who's going into healthcare. And like hearing, like having us say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing about it. You wrote so beautifully about it. You know, thank you for taking the time to share. Like opening that space can be really restorative for people. Yeah. Um, and can start to chip away at the harm and the silence in medicine, which one of the problems of medicine is HIPAA. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that HIPAA is the root cause of this. I, privacy exists. Yeah. But the notion that doctors are trained never speak about your patients, even when really horrible, traumatic things happen. Yeah. And you can't, you feel like you can't talk about it. Um, and the idea that actually you can, and there are people that aren't going to be scared away. And that was something I came up against a lot was knowing that people I talked to sometimes about my job would shut down and could yeah. not handle me saying like this man shot himself through the head. And yeah. I was there when he was coming out. Like people who sometimes can't engage with that. And just the knowledge that there is a space where you can confidentially share that information and have a group of people that you have fought with and written with and trust hear you, I think is important. And so for me, from my understanding, from like a public health model, narrative medicine is most applicable on the macro level. Whereas I would say in a hospital, it's kind of on a micro level, right? It's in your interactions with patients. It's in the the idea of creating like a narrative medicine community at your Mm -hmm. institution, a group of people who will support each other and who like to write and who like to read and who like to think critically about tech. But on a macro level, narrative medicine can be useful for saying, like looking at looking at certain types of research, right? So potentially looking at um, substance abuse research, right? Mm-hmm. Substance abuse is a huge problem in this country. One of the big reasons it's a huge problem is because it's stigmatized. Yeah. And looking at how do we structure the questions that we ask people who have tested positive for, let, let's say someone tests positive for methamphetamine. It's in their urine when they come in having a car accident or yeah. something. Going up to that patient and saying, do you use methamphetamine recreationally? How often do you use it? When did you start using it? Yeah. Um, do you want to be referred to a rehab? That can come off as really confrontational. And for some people, they might be totally comfortable with being asked those questions and they might say, whatever. And some people might hear that and absolutely clam up and not want to talk to you yep. and not trust you at all and feel like you are judging them. Yep. And so what narrative medicine can do when you know, people are thinking critically about the effect that their words are having um, and, and the effect that their presence is having is potentially thinking about, like, maybe the question that we should ask is, maybe the question we should ask is, isn't, why did you, isn't, like, when did you start? Yeah. Maybe, did something happen to you that made you feel like you needed to start using drugs? Maybe that's the question. Or maybe that's a terrible question. Yeah. Like, I'm just on the fly here, you know, but no, but it's it's taking that time to look at the person in front of you and remember that they are a person and that you have to 
like each question is going to be very unique for their situation. Yeah. And even thinking of what are the questions that we're not asking, right? Like looking mm-hmm. at what's not there. So yeah. looking at the question of looking at the question of um asking the question, when you were a child, did someone in your home use this drug? Yeah. That might be a really critical question that someone might be like, actually, yeah, my parents used this when I was a child. Yeah. And knowing that, you start chipping away at the actual lived experience of the patient that you're talking to because you're getting to the bottom of not just the fact that they're using this drug, which like we can objectively test via urine and blood samples, yeah. but also what are the interventions that are going to work for helping this person out of the situation yes. that they're in? And is it that this person really needs to be in a comprehensive inpatient setting where they do not have access to this drug and have mm-hmm. access to 24-7 therapy? Or does this person really need psychiatric care for PTSD? And is that, are they self-medicating? Yeah. And is it actually, this person doesn't really use methamphetamine that often, but they do drink a lot and they use the meth to keep drinking or whatever it may be. Like, yeah. Are they in pain physically? Like, how are they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you in pain? Do you exist in a, do you exist in a community where you feel you must use drugs? Yeah. Because that is acceptable. And all like, because that is, that is the common, a common cultural thing. And like all of those questions shouldn't be about me, the clinician feeling superior to you, the patient who has chosen to do drugs. Yeah. How can I best serve you? And if the answer is this patient is completely unwilling to change their lifestyle and they want to keep using Mm -hmm. methamphetamine, that is, you know, you can't, you can't save everyone. Yeah. And people have to be self-motivated, but people can tell when you care versus when you don't. Yes. And if you (laughs) walk into every situation or almost every, because nobody's perfect and people get burnt out and people have bad days and et cetera, et cetera. If you, if you genuinely show up to show up with your patients Mm -hmm. with the intention and the mindset of, I want to know you and I want to do what I can to understand what's going on with you. One of the, one of the like core principles of narrative medicine is narrative humility, which is the fundamental assumption that you can never know someone else's story. Yeah. You can just hear parts of it that they choose to tell you. Um, and that's really key for things like cultural competency, right? Is mm-hmm. We're not saying yeah. that you need to be competent in all of the cultures that exist on earth, right? No, like, because you can't. <laughs> because you can't. You can only know your own story. At the end of the day, and, yeah. And what you can do, but what you can do is respect and listen and understand that there are parts of that person's story that you're never going to hear and that might drive the behavior in ways mm-hmm. that you, you do not understand, but that are true for them and real for them and their truth. Um, And I think people, especially uh, people who tend to have harsher views, people who tend to have a more like American dream individualistic mindset are like, well, of course that's their choice to, to use drugs. And what I'm not saying is that this person is absolved of all blame, right? I'm not saying that like a person, we all make choices. We all make choices. But the question is, what, what precipitated those choices mm-hmm. and in what ways can I support different choices being made yes. for that person? So it's sort of a deeply individualistic mindset yeah. um, as opposed to that is, a yeah, That is very true. I think that's really true. And I think that I wonder how 
the, I guess the framework of narrative medicine. And I think just, or just the idea of humility and having these conversations, um, can I think stretch across other fields? Oh yeah. And I just, I think it could be so powerful. And I think it's, it started also in education a little bit. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of crossover with ed people and teachers often like I have a professor in one of my, um, a theater professor in one mm-hmm. of my workshops. Yeah, because I feel like it also has that, I guess the way our education structured um, historically also has that power structure mm-hmm. um, with this kind of like holder of knowledge and then you as the student is like supposed to be taught. The vessel of knowledge. Yep, <laughs> the vessel and it's poured into you and you're taught this stuff. Yeah, and you <laughs> must retain it in exactly the way that it was poured into you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of issues with education. Yeah, (laughs) agreed. And as As someone who's going into education, specifically um, a subfield of special education, I feel like um, the idea of, I think, sharing those narratives and like opening up the space for those, I think would be really, really helpful. Um, Yeah. And, And something that like I like about narrative medicine is that narrative medicine is a deeply intellectual field, right? Like we're reading Foucault and we're reading um, all of these like crazy thinkers and philosophers and bell hooks and like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, these people who are like absolutely wicked smart, wicked book smart. But narrative medicine isn't just about those thinkers. Mm -hmm. Narrative medicine is just as much about understanding a child as it is about understanding that literature and, and Levinasian thought. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're kind of taking those high concepts and applying them to the rest of the world. And I think that that's an important distinction between narrative medicine versus some other forms of like uh, medical humanities, which are very, which are still very focused on yeah. like, you need to go read, J.D. Salinger and you need to go read um, Camus and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff, which is like not necessarily accessible to everyone, but everyone has their own story and that is accessible to them. Yeah. I think that's such a powerful way of looking at at medicine because I feel like no matter where you are in life, um, whether you are like somewhat healthy right now or not, it's just like, I feel like everyone's touched by the medical field constantly. It's like, it's, yeah. well, it's, it's omnipresent. It's always there. Um, yeah. And it'll it, always be there. It's like, de- I mean, they say like death and taxes, right? Like yeah. death falling into medicines category. Yeah. And I will say that like part of, part of the challenge of fields like education and medicine is that there is always going to be some hierarchy. Same with law. I would, I would also yeah. say. When someone is an expert, like I am not against the idea of experts. Um, I think that isn't it lovely that someone else can be the repository of knowledge for you? What I am against is experts wielding knowledge and not even attempting to make that knowledge accessible to others. Yes. Um, and the, the way that a doctor should approach someone with a seventh grade education to talk to them about the fact that, for example, um, they need to be put on a presser for mm-hmm. their blood pressure. Yeah. 
um, should not be, well, we're going to run the Levo in at, at 0.1 mics per kilogram. And it's going to, it's going to basically, you know, tamp down your peripheral vascular system. And, uh, and I might be getting the specifics of this drug wrong. FYI, I'm not a doctor. Um, and it's, you know, and that's going to increase the amount of blood available yeah. to your blob, right? Like, that's not a fair way to explain that to no. someone. And I'm not saying that the doctor shouldn't know that because they should. Yeah. But I'm saying, like, they should know that. And the, the lay person doesn't have to know that. Like, they shouldn't know that. Like, it's not important. But what the doctor needs to do is say, I'm going to give you a medicine. It's going to go into the tube that's in your neck. This medicine is going to change the way that basically the blood is distributed through your body. It's yeah. going to make sure that there's more blood available to the parts of you that we really need to make sure are kept safe. And that means that your head's going to get more blood and your organs are going to get more blood. And that means that your head and your organs are going to get more oxygen. And right now, um, your body's not able right now to regulate your blood pressure. And we're hoping that that's temporary. And we're going to give you this medicine until your body's able to do that. And here are the reasons we think your body might not be able to do that. Maybe mm -hmm. it's you have bacteria in your blood and those bacteria are making your body work really hard to maintain um, balance, all the balances that are yeah. in your body right now. Or it might be um, you lost a lot of blood from this accident and we need to help your body out while your bones build more blood for you. Mm -hmm. And like all of those words that I'm using are much more accessible and I think still tell a similar story in a way that a person with a person whose expertise is not in medicine and is in something else because everyone is an expert at something yeah. can understand it. And if you find out that your patient is ex is a plumber, you might figure out ways yeah. to explain things using their terminology that might make sense to them and come and sit at home with them. And the goal always is that people should not be completely ignorant to their care. And of course not. Yeah. if your patients are ignorant to their care, you need to find out why mm -hmm. there obviously are some cultural there are some cultures that believe that families should take care of all of those details and that mm -hmm. the patient should not. And that's a choice. But a lot of the time I think it's that people get really overwhelmed. Yeah. And if you slow down and you use words that are accessible, patients will be much more likely to understand what's going on and feel safer in yeah. your care because they know what you're doing. And that's not always going to be true, right? Like there are going to be situations where you're like, I'm so sorry, I need to push this medicine and it's going to paralyze you and put you to sleep. And I need to put a tube down your mouth right now. And I'm so yeah. sorry. But those moments are unavoidable. But of the course. other moments. Aren't. Yeah. Yeah. Where you have, yeah, you have to, per when you have those opportunities, you need to take them. You need right. to help. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like your, it's a patient right to understand. I feel like what is going on with their body. Yeah, to the best to the best of best your of and their ability. ability. Yeah, to both of you. Yeah. Right. And and also like there are some patients who don't care and don't want to know because it is all scary to them. Yeah. And then your job is figuring out if there is a way that you can make it not scary to them. Mm -hmm. Because there might be a way. Yeah. And like with I mean, the best example is pediatric care. Pediatric yeah. people are great at this. They're wonderful, because yeah. <laughs> they're running chemo into the kid's body and they're using the words that the kids understand. Like these are superheroes and they're going in to fight the bad guys in your blood. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of, that mindset has to also be applied to adults. Yeah. Um, and that's something I really care about. And I think that using narrative medicine as a, as a framework for thinking about that is, is useful.
to me. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of this like wonderful knowledge <laughs> with, with me and with and with my audience <laughs> that I oh, have. Of course. I don't know how much uh I mean, I don't know how much like practical information I can share, but a lot of these are my opinions and no, uh, a lot of these opinions are shared by other um, narrative medicine practitioners, if you can call us that. Yeah. Um, and I'll also just say that other people practice narrative medicine in different ways mm -hmm. and prioritize different parts of narrative medicine and the parts that I prioritize and the ways that I integrate it into my life and my practice are because of my own experiences and because of the patients that I have worked with and other people might have very different ways of using narrative medicine. Um, and because narrative medicine is a young field, we're all still figuring out what exactly it should look like. This is, we are not rheumatology. Yeah. We know exactly what they're about and goes and does it. Um, we are much more flexible and, um, and yeah, so, so I would say like, if, if anyone who listens to this is interested in learning more about narrative medicine, I would absolutely suggest um, reading more about it. Go to the Columbia website. Um, it'll link you to articles and books that you can read. Um, and you can sort of decide if, if this is something that's interesting to you, how this would fit into your life and into mm -hmm. your practice um, yeah. and what that would look like for you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I guess to wrap us up today, um, I guess, do you have anything else you'd like to share before, before we sign off? Oh my. Um, any wishes for the world? <laughs> uh, yeah. If any of you out there are, um, in medicine to carry yourself, um, an injured soldier can't keep anybody safe. Mm -hmm. That goes for people in medicine too. Um, if you are a person out there who doesn't believe in science and doesn't believe in masks and doesn't believe in vaccines, I urge you to find clinicians and talk to them about these issues um, because clinicians, for the most part, if you engage with them one-on-one, -on -one, they'll do their best to explain things to you. Um, and it can be really scary to live in a pandemic, it is really scary to live in a pandemic and it can be really scary to believe in science because it means you have to believe in a lot of things that are really scary. Um, but I promise that we clinicians are doing everything that we can to keep you safe. Um, vaccines keep you safe, masks keep you safe, seatbelts keep you safe, not having a gun in the home keeps you safe. Um, and if you need a reminder of that, I am at Maya J. Serini on Twitter. You can always get in touch with me and I'll take a phone call and you can talk. Um, and for those who are going into medicine, take a deep breath. We're so lucky to have you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a hard road, but you can do it. That's, that's what I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the podcast. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope that, uh, I hope that, those who listen find it interesting and exciting. <laughs> I feel like they will. <laughs> I know I did. <laughs> oh, I love to hear that. Uh, we'll have a wonderful rest of your day. Yes, you too. And stay safe. Stay dry. Uh, yes, stay, yes, stay dry. Um, stay cozy. <laughs>
and enjoy a, maybe enjoy a bath today. <laughs> oh, I might. There is a bath here. Ooh. Well, thank you again. Bye. Bye.